Hi everybody, welcome back to the third and final installment of the 1978 firefighter strike. We'll just listen in as Joe and Sam talk with Bonnie about how the strike ended up, the outcome of that, and I'll be back right after this. Thanks. Welcome back to Forgotten History, part three. Here we are in the trenches of the situation in 1978 in Memphis, so let's dive right back in. Memphis left unprotected by the police and fire departments, tensions around the situation rose. As both Chandler and the unions became further entrenched in their positions, many Memphians joined together to search for a peaceful and fair solution to the strikes. A prayer meeting was held at the Levitt Shell, which over 200 people attended. At the time, it was hard not to think about the strike 10 years earlier, where the impasse was only overcome with the catalyst of Martin Luther King's assassination. Citizens and business leaders in Memphis felt they had to get the situation under control before it did irreparable damage to the city, both physically and in the eyes of the nation, whose attention was increasingly drawn to the situation in Memphis, not only because of the strikes, but because of the fast-approaching first anniversary of Elvis Presley's death, which would bring thousands of fans to Memphis to participate in memorial services. The police and fire unions were both hoping that the influx of visitors would force the city to settle on a contract. A prolonged strike would also soon do serious economic damage to the city. A study by an economics researcher at Memphis State University came out saying, The city was only beginning to recover from the bad publicity of the 1968 sanitation strike, and this latest round of strikes could again give the impression that Memphis city government has irreparably bad labor management relations. Business leaders were becoming worried that Memphis would never see more growth of industry as the strikes would scare them off. Mediators were still working to continue negotiations between the city and unions, but whenever a meeting was scheduled, only the union side would show up, as Chandler said he would not negotiate with the strikers. This was not a time for the city administration to be stubborn and dig in their heels. This was a time to have an open discussion and end a disaster in Memphis. Tommy Powell, president of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations in Memphis, called for a citywide general strike, which would include all workers represented by any sort of union in Memphis, if the city withdrew recognition of either the police or fire unions. He was standing up for the strikers and also for labor in Memphis in general, saying that, If we let that nut Chandler break the fire and police unions, then all labor in Memphis is in danger. Finally, on August 15th, Chandler agreed to a meeting with the striking unions. Chandler proposed the strike to end, and in return, the unions would get all strikers rehired and a 6% raise. He would also allow for a civil service commission to determine if their seniority and benefits should be given back. He then asked the unions to submit their best economic offer to mediators and see how much more they wanted above the city proposal. A difference would be put to a vote in November, and citizens could vote to raise sales taxes to get the money for the unions. If the taxpayers voted no, then the contracts would continue with just the 6% raise. The city council approved this plan, but both unions rejected it. The plan was really vague with no real commitments, and it left much of the raises up to votes and commissions. It was also unrealistic that the people would vote for higher taxes when nationwide people were revolting against taxes. 
Then, at 12.33 on August 16th, the city was plunged into darkness in a county-wide blackout that extended into northern Mississippi. Scattered looting, vandalism, and violence broke out in the pre-dawn chaos, and some students broke into the zoo and had a party. Of course, everyone suspected the unions were involved in some sort of sabotage attempt against the city, but that wasn't the case. When we lost power, we were on our picket line, everything went dark. And of course, everybody thought it was a firefighter that did that. And it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a firefighter at all, and yet we took the heat from it. People were cussing us, screaming at us. It wasn't even one of our firemen, yeah. some civilian. The blackout was caused by a drunk security guard at the Memphis Light, Gas, and Water substation in Cordova and had absolutely no relation to the strikes. And get this, six hours after he was arrested, his blood alcohol content was measured at 0.14%, still twice the legal limit. Power was restored by 4 a.m., and the memorial services for Elvis set for that day were not bothered. At the urging of business people in Memphis and in order to not disrupt the services for Elvis, Chandler pushed the curfew back from 8 to 10 p.m. On August 17th, more than 200 striking police and firemen, along with their families and hundreds of Memphis community members, again marched on City Hall for an end to the strike. Unlike the last march on City Hall, this one was completely nonviolent. As negotiations continued later that day, third-party negotiators, Memphis business, civil, and union leaders, and the city met until early that morning. The mayor proposed three packages but would not allow any contracts that were only one year. These third-party people were really instrumental in ending the strike and saving Memphis, whatever their motivations. They helped. There's some big businessmen in the city of Memphis that tell the mayor what to do. And that's still going on. Curfew had affected their businesses. They were mad because they weren't able to, you know, sell burgers or do whatever they do because of that. So they were unhappy. What actually brought the end of the deal was uh, John Grisani, who at the time was one of the most influential businessmen, went to Chandler and told him, listen, you gotta, you got to fix this. I'm losing way too much business. And, and it wasn't just him, it was other guys mm -hmm. who were, said, you got to, whatever you got to do to fix this, you fix this. You know, these guys were, were influential enough that they could have made life difficult mm -hmm. for the mayor. So in the end, the settlement was not due to either side giving in. The morning of the 18th, union presidents emerged from all-night talks saying that a settlement had been reached by both unions, but the membership still had to vote on the contracts. The police, and soon after the firemen, accepted the city offers. Part of both settlements was a fact-finding board which would study the pay structure in Memphis and decide if the protective employees were being paid enough. The firefighters agreed to a three-year contract with a 6% raise immediately, a $30 per month raise starting in April, and a 7.5 raise starting in October of 1979. They received no shift differential pay or pay parity. The MPA settled on a 6.653% raise July 5th and a $22.50 increase per month starting on July 1st, 1979, and a 7.5 increase that October. These were very similar to the original contracts proposed to both unions. As part of the settlement, the International Association of Firefighters Local 1784 would pay $10,000 to help pay for damages caused during the strikes, and the MPA would pay $5,000. Both unions would still be recognized, and everyone would be hired back with no losses. The police went back at 4 p.m. on the 18th, and the firemen were to go back the next morning. So it was settled. We have contracts, and the horrors are the summer are over. Or so they thought.
Firemen were returning to work the next morning. They were suddenly told by union officials not to, but not to go back to the picket lines either. None of the members knew what was happening, and some thought they were going back on strike. What had happened was shortly after the MPA and Firefighters Union accepted the city's proposal, Chandler appeared on television to express second thoughts. He said that some of the statements made by the union presidents to their members were not in accordance with what he understood the agreements to be. He said, I am waiting for the leaders of both unions to bring me their understanding of the agreement in writing, and then I will indicate whether I will accept the agreement. Chandler opposed the idea that there would be no disciplinary action taken against certain strikers. But by 7 p.m. on August 18th, a final agreement had been reached and signed, and by the next morning, all strikers returned to work, and Memphis was again under the protection of the police and fire unions. In the wake of the strike, there was a lot of tension between those members of the Memphis police and fire departments who struck and those who worked. Those who continued to work had a hard time after the strike. They were threatened and ostracized by union members, but management handled the situation differently. Here's Jerry talking about his lieutenant who had urged him to join a union. When the strike come along, he worked. And right after that, he was promoted to captain. And that stunk. That literally stunk. Everybody <clears throat> that worked got promoted. Got promoted, whether they were qualified or not. The disrespect for unions by the management of the police and fire departments still existed. A few months after the strike, the fact-finding board that Chandler had put together came back with no recommendation for extra pay raises for the police and fire departments of Memphis. Their contracts stood as they were. Then, in November of 1978, the city voted with overwhelming support to outlaw public employee strikes. An amendment was added to the city charter that said any public employee that strikes will be fired, losing seniority and benefits. The police and fire strikes were the last public employee strikes in Memphis, only 10 years after the first one. The short-lived age of radical unionism in Memphis was over, and the city wanted to keep it that way. Mayor Chandler won re-election for mayor in 1979, even with most labor unions in the city campaigning against him. And I know what you're all thinking. Did the unions really gain anything from the strikes? And this is the answer I got when I asked that question. Yeah, I do. Uh, it was the wrong way to do it. Yeah, I mean, maybe not the wrong way to do it. It should not have happened. Mm -hmm. But we gained respect. We can't walk on these people. They're not, they're not gonna allow it. And we did gain monetarily some ground. Mm -hmm but nothing compared to what I went through. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather, uh, what we went through, I'd rather them kept it. Because it's worse, it's, I'm telling you, I loved the fire department. I was there 30 years, I loved the fire department. But 78 was the worst year. I don't really think that after hearing the story of the strikes, we can be surprised by that answer. It really is upsetting to think about what the unions in the city of Memphis had to go through that summer and for it all to end in regret. There's no way the unions could have known when they went on strike that the city would have been so unbelievably stubborn throughout the situation. This is not a happy story, and it is not a triumphant moment for Memphis. It's a story of a stubborn government entrenched in tradition and a southern paternalistic mindset when it came to labor, and a union that was sick and tired of being disrespected. It's clear to see why the city would want to forget this ever happened, and I hate that I'm going to say this, but... 
By forgetting our history, we're doomed to repeat it. The best we can do is be honest with ourselves because like it or not, this history exists as part of our city. Memphis isn't all Graceland and sparkling Mississippi water. Our motto is grit and grind, and it's the gritty stuff that really gives Soul City its soul. And like so many moments in Memphis, this episode resulted in a song. In 1979, the Canadian rock band Prism wrote a song called Armageddon about these strikes, which would become one of the band's most recognizable tunes. So, here you go. Enjoy. And thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this three-parter on the firefighter strike in 1978 in Memphis. We want to thank Bonnie Whitehouse for all of the work that she did on this presentation and uh, come back and visit us soon at ourmemphishistory.com. Thanks. <laughs>